0: It's good to meet you. If I've not met you yet, my name is Luke. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I get to lead this text today. I'm pretty excited about this text, but not for the reason you would think. In fact, it's very likely you've not heard this text taught very often, and I'm about to show you why. Um, Look in your Bible at John 8, and we're actually going to back it up one scripture to John 7, 53, but John 8 is going to be where we spend a good amount of time focusing today. I'm going to read it to you. I'm just going to read that whole little passage. It's just, it's a real quick one. It's 11 verses from John 7:53. This is what we read. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go ahead from now on and sin no more. Okay. All of the best evidence we have, biblical evidence, would say that doesn't belong in your Bible. Okay? Now, don't panic. But it's very likely that this crowd favorite, and it is a crowd favorite, it's not really Scripture. Okay? Now, This is going to open up a very important thing for us to look at and how we trust and believe the Bible to be a reliable word for us today, and we do. Don Carson says this. He's considered by most people to be probably the best New Testament scholar of our generation, without a doubt. I mean, it kind of doesn't even depend on what food group of God's kingdom you're in. And this is what he says. He says, despite the best efforts of some to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. That's why some of you, you have like these little funny looking brackets around it, don't you? Did you catch that? And maybe a little asterisk or a footnote saying that it didn't belong in the earliest of manuscripts? That's what's happening. Another great New Testament scholar from Australia, Leon Morris, he says this, textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel interesting. It's a good story. It's a crowd favorite. I'm going to make the case it doesn't belong in the Bible that you hold in your laps. But it does give us a good opportunity to look at what is called textual criticism. Textual criticism is a branch of biblical studies dealing with the trustworthiness and the reliability of what we call the Bible. We actually took a peek at this not too many, maybe two or three months ago, whenever we looked at the story of the paralytic that was laying by the pool of Bethesda, the one that Jesus came by and said, stand up. If you remember that teaching, there was one little sentence that was inserted in there. It had some funny brackets around it, and I had to kind of tell you why those brackets were there. What I'd like to do is kind of go back to that and give a little bit more texture to it, okay? The New Testament you hold in your hands, or an app, whatever you're using, was originally written in Greek, okay? And for the first maybe 1,500 years, it was copied by hand. It wasn't until about 1,500 AD that they started cranking them off a press. But for that first 1,500 years, you'd have a guy looking at a copy and making another copy by hand, And they were super, super good at this, right? It was like a full-time job. They're making copies of copies that were made from copies, from copies, all the way back to what was called the original autograph. And we have no idea if there are any original autographs around in existence today. Most likely not. Okay? That's how you got what you have Now, now, we have 24,000 of these New Testament manuscripts. About 6,000 of them are in Greek, okay? There's several thousand in Latin and a bunch of other languages, but 24,000 is a lot, right? Plato, which has formed a lot of the way we think in, in our time today, there's only seven manuscripts. Seven manuscripts to point to what he says. Seven copies of copies of copies. Aristotle has 49 The New Testament has 24,000. And you get a couple things whenever you see that many manuscripts, copies of copies. You get a couple benefits. One is that you get to see very clearly where all the discrepancies are at, all of the disagreements, I guess you could say, all the variations. You'll see different wording used different grammar used from time to time. You'll even see a story inserted where it doesn't normally go or one that you don't recognize. If you have 24,000 copies of anything, you're gonna see more and more and more and more variations. I mean, I want you to imagine saying a sentence 24,000 times, right? Like, wow, exclamation mark. I didn't realize Tennessee was gonna struggle with Appalachian State to the level that it did, period. Period, period, or ellipses, right? Now, if you did that 24,000 times and you said it out loud, there there would be one time that it might pick up some voice inflection. So if they were writing it down, they might throw a comma in there, or they might kind of add a little detail about what your face looked like as you said it. 24,000 times will show you more and more where the variations are at. Now, don't panic as you hear me say that. Because of all the variations and discrepancies and insertions, nothing collides with the gospel. Nothing nullifies a truth that the Bible teaches. In fact, what 24,000 manuscripts will also do is it will give you confidence as it self-corrects. Because, again, let's say 23,999 of these sentences that you're saying over and over again, it said, wow, exclamation point, but it said, wow, period, period and another. Well, one out of 24,000, you could probably rest assured and sleep well at night knowing that the original autograph had an exclamation mark because it self-corrects. So I tell you all of that not to bore you to death because you didn't go to seminary to take a class in textual criticism, but this story, the one I just read as we started this sermon off, is missing from all of the Greek manuscripts up to 400 AD, all of them. That means for the first few hundred years, this was not in the New Testament, okay? That's important because those first few hundred years are closest to the original autograph. And by the way, that's older than our country. That's a long time for it not to show up, right? Also, none of the earliest church fathers, as they wrote their commentaries, none of them commented on that on that passage 753 to 811 they would skip over it and jump straight from 752 all the way to L 812 without even missing a beat it just goes straight from one to the other in fact it would be 900 years before any commentator would comment on this passage and when they do in the commentaries you'll see another asterisk you'll see a little note saying uh This is what I think this passage is saying, but I will say I don't know that it needs to be discussed because I'm not sure it's authoritative scripture over our lives. I'm not sure it's legitimately to be in the New Testament. Also, and what I think is probably one of the bigger indictments, the language doesn't match. If you look at the original structure and understructure of the language, it doesn't fit John. John's written the book of John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John's written a lot. None of this phraseology and a lot of the vocabulary is not found in any of his writings. In fact, it sounds a a lot more like Luke than it does John, So we have this. But most scholars, and I agree, believe that it's probably a true, I mean, probably really happened. It's probably a true story. In fact, we don't have any reason to believe that this moment did not occur. And everybody loves the story. This is a favorite, as I said. So it leaves pastors in a bit of a struggle because they don't know what to do with this. They don't know whether they should preach it or not. In fact, I know a lot of pastors that won't touch this. They skip over it whenever they teach the book of John. They won't even, they won't even touch it, right? Because after all, my job is to lead you on Sunday mornings through authoritative scripture, divinely inspired scripture that teaches you about God and shows you clearly the person of Jesus and what he has done for us and how we live today by the power of the Holy Spirit as we are discipled by each other in Christ and we disciple others in a broken city. That's part of my job, but it's in our Bible. So what are we gonna do with it? It's in your Bible. I think the most responsible thing that we can do is find a standout truth in this and let let it lead us to authoritative scripture. Find a standout principle that rings heavy that we could use as a trail to a piece of scripture that we do sit under and does have authority over our life. And that's easy with this one. That's easy because the punchline for this is that grace has come to lead us away from sin. That's what's happening in here. Grace has come to lead us away from sin. You have Jesus saying, has no one condemned you? Because look, I'm looking around and they're walking away. They're dropping rocks. It doesn't look like anyone has a problem with you right now. You tell me, does anyone around here have a problem with you? No. No one's here. Everyone's dropped their rocks. That's right. And I'm not picking up a rock against you either. I don't condemn you either. Now, go forward and sin no more. Grace has come. Obedience follows. That's one of the standout punchlines, theses of this. The ultimate reason that Jesus could exempt her from condemnation is that soon after this, he will take the condemnation on his own shoulders. Something much worse than a stoning will happen to him. He takes it upon himself. Condemnation, it will be exhausted, but it will be exhausted on his shoulders. And just like he's talking to her, he's talking to you, he's talking to me as he says, I will not condemn you. Go forward and sin no more. It's a picture of grace. Now we talk about grace a lot here, but I see new faces. I want to make sure you don't misunderstand what grace is. Knoxville struggles in understanding grace. I find out more and more as I live. Grace is very simply this. God's favor spilled upon you, gifted to you overabundantly. God's favor, but listen, This is despite your ability to drop it and fumble it, or run away from it, or try to earn it after you've already gotten it. It is God's grace, His favor given to you, totally despite you. Totally despite you. Your your, your lack of lovability, your intrinsic value, your great performance, besides it, in fact, despite it, God gives you grace. And what He's saying to this woman here is do not commit adultery anymore. But not because you're afraid of getting stoned, not because you don't want people to throw rocks at you. That would be law, right? Action, retribution. Don't do it because of that. Do it because you've touched grace, because grace has found you and nurtured you and, in fact, changed you. You know, I don't know if you ever do this when you read the Bible in passages like this, but I wonder what happened to the woman after this. You ever do that? I mean, he encounters some pretty interesting people that feel very normal to me, but then they just kind of drift off into the background, the the texture of of God's story, and we don't really catch eye of them again. I don't know what happens to this woman or Zacchaeus or the paralytic by the pool or the man that was born blind. I mean, the, the little girl that was raised up. We don't really see them anymore. I wonder if they ever cross paths, locked eyes. I wonder if they ever talk to each other again. Do you think her behavior just went away? Jesus didn't say that she was not an adulteress. He did not say that she was not in sin, nor did he say her sin was okay. She had a problem. She had a pervasive behavior. She had a sexual problem. Probably could be pulled right back to a very big relational problem that she had and it was something that didn't happen overnight That's how sexual problems occur. I mean, it, it, it's stretched out It's more of a slow boil and then it just kind of erupts into something very ugly down the line this we know Did it just go away overnight though I think we think that it does in our head like she's different than us, but she is us I'm not so sure it just went away overnight. I'm sure she wasn't tempted the very next day to go back to it, because you know how it is. You commit some grievous sin, and you feel kind of sick to your stomach about it. Maybe you feel a little bit of shame on top of your shoulders, or or like you've wounded God, or you've hurt him, and you just feel the sharp push of that sin, but then you also have tasted grace and forgiveness. And so it's kind of fresh. And and there's a lack of hunger for that same sin. So one day, two days, four days, you you don't find yourself going back to that sin, do you? But what about three months or three years? I wonder if some of that heavy conviction and heavy passion maybe starts to wear off. Maybe the look of Jesus eye to eye with her as he says, neither do I condemn you. It was probably so attractive, it was probably stuck in her head for so many days, but maybe maybe it starts to weather over time. I'll bet she obeyed. And I'll bet she handles sin like we do. But what do you think was behind it all when she obeyed, when she performed well, when she was away from sexual sin? Why do you think she did it? You see, that's the important question for you and me today. And it does matter, friends. It matters big time. I'll explain. I was a freshman in high school before I wanted to be the president of the United States, right? It took me that long. Up until then, I wanted to be a truck driver because I grew up watching Smokey and the Bandit. I didn't know that they were bootlegging stuff, I just thought it was cool they were running from the cops, and I wanted to be a truck driver. But whenever I was a freshman in high school, my high school saw fit to bring in an old, salty, long since retired secret service agent who, had, who was on the presidential detail from one of the first families I, I don't even know, right? And so they brought him in to talk to all the classes, and he gave the company's speech, work hard, try hard respect authority do your homework you know and everyone was kind of yawning but I just wanted to ask that guy some real pointed questions so after the Q&A I went up with some guys and we said listen you've got to give us a story like like story you know what I'm saying like what it was really like to be in the secret service <laughs> you could tell he really wanted to he's like all right right this is how it went you know And he leaned in and he told me about how there was either a son, I can't remember if it was a son or a nephew of one of the presidents that would always go out club hopping and go to bars. Of course, the presidential detail has to go with. Secret service agents, like two of them, were going with this guy. And this guy knew it. So he would walk up to the biggest guy in the bar he could find and pick a fight. Because he had Jack Bauer here and Jason Bourne right here who were going to clean up whatever mess he got into. So he would go around on weekends picking fights, and these Secret Service agents would have to just kind of mop up, you know? And it was at that time that I knew I was destined to be the President of the United States. Because that's pretty cool, you know? You could walk around and just start swinging on people or run your mouth off, and no one's ever going to touch you, you know? Or to be a Secret Service agent. That wasn't off the table either, because then you get a medal or a raise, For doing that. You can get into a bar fight and get paid for it, you know, with a baton and a gun and all the cool stuff. I tell that story because it reminds me of how we handle grace, as I just defined it for you, right? I feel like a lot of us in the church, Christians, can go around picking fights in places we shouldn't be, doing things we shouldn't do, saying things we shouldn't say, thinking things we shouldn't think, because after all, we've got a secret service agent behind us that's just going to catch us if we fall. He's just going to clean up whatever pile I leave on the floor. He's going to take care of it with me. I mean, it's just grace. I know I sinned. I know I shouldn't have done that, but hey, I've got grace. Grace is here to fix it for me. Whatever trouble we find ourselves in, grace is kind of an eraser. It's a sloppy way to handle it. God's grace shouldn't encourage us to sin. It should lead us from it. I think this is where we take that passage that's got a big asterisk by it and we let it lead us to one that does not, one that we can sit under as an authority over our lives that we surrender and submit to, and that's in Romans 6. So if you have your Bible still in front of you or your app, go ahead and flip over to Romans 6. This is the word of the Lord for us today. I think it's going to help us see Jesus much more clearly, but also see how we handle grace. Romans 6. What shall we say then, Paul says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And here it is, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Under grace. I imagine this to be the most marked up passage in that adulteress's Bible. She didn't have one, but if she did, This would have been the one that's all lit up with yellow highlighter like mine, and she would have had stuff written on the side and dog-eared the page and, and had it really well read, probably memorized. This would have been the one. I think Paul unpacks what Jesus was saying to her, but it's being said to you and me as well. God's grace should not encourage us to sin. It should lead us away from sin. In fact, I think how we as a church handle grace I think directly affects how helpful we'll be to the city of Knoxville. I don't think it means we won't grow if we don't handle grace, right? I mean, we could bail on this teaching. And I think we could probably still grow, have cool music. Eventually, we'll bring coffee out there and slap a sticker on your car. I think that stuff could still happen. But if we do bail on this, there's no way, and I mean no way, we will be able to disciple others from a grace centrality nor bring anything to the city that makes any sense at all. I think this is the limiter and the throttle, how we understand and how we handle grace. I think this is important for us as a church. And as I sit on this passage for the last few weeks, I'm reminded that it is one of the main reasons we even came to plant this church. I mean, we had a small rubric. One is, do they have a college campus? When you come to college towns, Knoxville's the top of the heap, right? It really is. But, But another thing is we were looking for a place that did not know how to handle grace. And we were looking for a place that does not typically enjoy Jesus. They would rather just clock in and work for Jesus. We found that in Knoxville. Knoxville struggles enjoying Jesus. Knoxville struggles in understanding grace. In fact, one of the hardest things for Christians to do anywhere, anytime, is to obey God, obey God from a posture of grace and not law. It's hard. It's hard to do this we either obey God so that he doesn't blast us and maybe he'll give us cool things or we choose not to obey God because after all, I've got a secret service agent. His name is Grace. and He'll take care of anything that I start and I can't finish. If I find myself in dark corners I should not be in, well, hey, he's here. He's going to take care of me. He's going to make it all better. He's going to clean it all up. I still find myself like you, Behaving in such a way that there's an old residue stuck to me that says, Luke, you better behave and perform well or God will get you. Now, I might not say it out loud, but it's subtle. It's back there. God will get you. You won't get and you will be punished if you don't do things right. And I mean exactly right. By the way, this is what the world sees when it looks at the church. A bunch of people... A bunch of people who are trying really hard to follow a clipboard full of rules to make their God happy. That way, our God stops his temper tantrum and, and stops stomping his feet because we're, we're actually checking things off of the clipboard. That is what the world sees. But I find myself on the other end of the scale too, not always hungry to obey because after all, I've got grace. After all, I mean, God's grace will cover this, Right? This is also what the world sees too. A church full of people doing the same things the world is doing, not showing that God demands any kind of holiness or values it in any way. We just look like a bunch of hypocrites. I think this is what the key dilemma is as I think about this and I think about my own life growing up as a Christian. I think as new Christians, we don't really know what to do with grace yet. It's kinda new still, you know what I'm saying? It's like when you get a new piece of technology and you pull it out of the box, and you get all of the plastic off of it and you throw away the manual, you know, because who needs that, or the warranty, and now you've just got the the device. Now, you kinda know what the device does, but not all of it, right? Then you start wishing you didn't throw away the manual, but you have this device, you know about 50% about what it does, and you're sure you're gonna figure out the rest on the way. I think this is how we handle grace sometimes. We're not used to it. We understand it a little bit, but not like we should. Because we're used to earning things. That's how we've grown up, right? Do you want an allowance? Better do your chores. Do you want to raise at work? You better improve and clock in a little bit earlier. Do you want good grades? You're going to have to work hard. Do you not want a whooping? And stop sassing me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, we are taught to earn things. We're not taught to, 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 to get things regardless of our intrinsic value and our lovability. We're not taught that we're going to get things in life just despite our behavior we're taught the opposite that we only get things in life because of our behavior and then this thing called grace shows up and it's counter everything we've ever been taught it takes a while to get our arms around it and i think what makes the dilemma more difficult for us is right when we are just starting to get our hands around grace our fingers kind of meet we're just starting to get it then we abuse it then we make it sloppy Then we abuse it because we're really good at abusing gifts that God has given us. Any kind of gift God has given us, we usually end up abusing it all the way right up the tree to Jesus Himself as a gift to us and abusing Him. We treat grace as an eraser, taking care of all of our big problems. I think when we grow into grace a little bit, we see that it catches us despite our failures, and that is true. It is true that our sins don't earn us spankings anymore. Because Jesus took the totality of that for us. Condemnation, it's true. It won't land on you. It was exhausted and poured to the last drop on Jesus Christ himself. All of this is true. God punished Jesus, crushed him on the cross instead of you. And that's for all of your sins. The ones you do in the dark, the ones you flagrantly do in his face, the ones you do when you're a little kid, the ones you do when you're 900 years old, all of them. Abusing grace just to feed our flesh, this is what a lot of people call sloppy grace, where we actually misrepresent grace as we abuse it. I think that's a struggle as well. Here's the truth for us today, I think. I think some of us are misbehaving, even at a most basic level. Some of us are misbehaving, and we're treating grace as a loophole. Something that's just gonna come behind us and sweep up our mess, as we leave unscathed, looking at things you shouldn't be looking at. You're being entertained by things you shouldn't be entertained by. We're eating things we shouldn't eat. We're drinking things we shouldn't drink. We're going to places we shouldn't go. We're thinking things we shouldn't think. All of this is true, and we know it. We know it, but we also know that whenever we do commit sins, it's covered by the blood of Jesus. We also know that too. So Jesus's blood becomes a little bit of a bar tab for us. Just throw another one on there. It's covered. I'll take another one. It's covered. Because after all, it doesn't really matter, right? Listen, if grace is not changing you and leading you away from sin, is it even there in your life? If grace is not changing you and leading you away from sin, do you really have a bodyguard behind you? Do you really have grace active in your life? And then I can easily see myself on the other side where I might not be so sloppy with grace, but that's because I'm too much of a Pharisee to do it. Maybe you join me there from time to time. Some of us are behaving on the outside, but on the inside, we don't experience grace Grace is not present. It's not that we're sloppy with it. We just don't see it at all. It's not there at all. We're just contractually trying to win benefits from God. This is actually how the Pharisees and the religious leaders were handling people back then. That's how they handled this woman. That's why we're reading this story that we're reading. They understood that if you follow the law, God's law to us, good things will happen. If you break the law, you get a spanking, and bad things will happen. So they obeyed. But it was from a contractual posture with no grace, Kind of like what I have with Verizon (laughs) or Gold's Gym or any of these things. If I stop paying Verizon according to the contract, guess what happens? They shut my fancy phone off, right? No longer can I watch funny YouTube videos or text or any of that stuff. It doesn't happen. I just have an expensive alarm clock that takes pictures. That's what happens. And let me tell you what's not going to happen. I'm not going to get a call from Verizon saying, hey, Luke, we just want to let you know. We know you've stiffed us on the last two billing cycles, but we just love you, man. We just like you. No reason. You're just a cool dude. So we're going to turn all the the faucets back on. Enjoy your life. That's not going to happen. Gold's Gym's not going to let me. They're not going to say, hey, welcome to Gold's Gym, you know. Enjoy our, you know, super sanitary steam room or enjoy our sweaty equipment. They're not going to do that. They're going to say, your car is out in the parking lot, and you can call this number if you want to get a membership with us. You see, even though we are 2,000 years away from this story at least, I'm still right in the middle of it. We could still find ourselves acting like Pharisees and religious leaders. That's why we perform while we look over our shoulder, really hoping that God sees what we're doing. This is why we pray loudly when we feel like we're behaving. We don't pray at all when we feel like we're misbehaving. This is why we like to show up to things in order to get clean before God or because we are clean before God in our eyes. That's why we don't show up to things if we think we're too dirty to show up where all the clean people are at in front of a clean God. It affects our behavior. When it comes to contracts... The message of grace for you and me is that the terms have been met permanently by Jesus, who followed all of the points of the contract and therefore deserves the benefits of the contract, but he gives you the benefit of the contract. And even though we failed to keep the contract, he takes the penalties and levels them on his own shoulders, and as our hero, he takes the penalty for you and me. That's the beauty of grace. You get what you don't deserve. And you don't deserve what you get. You are not that lovable. So, with all of this, everything we've said in a blender, what does it mean for your sin and obedience? How do you obey today, tomorrow, in three months, in three years? How do you do this? Because it matters. And Jesus is just as much looking at you and me and saying, Neither do I condemn you, son of the Lord daughter in the Lord. Not only do I not condemn you, go and sin no more. Does it matter how we do that or just that we do that? Does it matter what's going on in our heart as we perform or as we obey? Here's an exercise, and this is a healthy one. I was just doing this the other day, and it's just a healthy exercise to go through. What is it What sin or pattern of misbehavior in your life promises enjoyment beyond what God can give you? So whatever it is you walked in here with, whatever it was, some pervasive misbehavior, whatever problem it was, that you know, gosh, if I could pick one thing I would like to just have go away forever, whether it's overworking or pornography, whatever it is, I want it to go away. Think of that. Keep it in your minds. What is that promising you? that you think God's not giving you already. Consider it. You see, Tim Chester says the beginning of sin is where we stand in accusation and say, God, you're trying to hold me back. You're, you're out to hurt me, not to benefit me. And I think I can get from this thing over here what you could never give me. And that's where sins come from. What is it for you? Because you have two options once you've got it in your head, whatever it is. You've got two options. One is to grit your teeth. And by sheer willpower, will that sin away. Just fueled by nothing but shame and and guilt and greed, just try hard. And I mean double down, triple down, quadruple down. Because if you succeed, then maybe God will bless you, right? That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is just to say, enjoy Jesus more than the sin, nurturing your affection for Jesus and his gift for you. That's another way to do it. One is law and one is grace. Do you see how that stacks up? Gritting your teeth is bound by a sense and a desire to change by the power of the law, which no one has ever done. But if you're centered around the gospel in your life, then you're able to nurture your affections for what Jesus has already done. No longer are you gritting your teeth hoping for a benefit you're celebrating and being fascinated with the fact that a benefit has already come. You see, that's what Paul is saying in Romans. That last sentence For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's exactly what he's saying. The, the route to obedience is through enjoying Jesus. That's how you get there. That thing you had in your head. The route to obedience is through grace. Is through enjoying Jesus and what he has done for us and being fascinated and fixated on the center of his love for you and his love for me. There is no gritting of teeth in the Christian living, there's no need for it, there's no place. But when you do fail, there's grace to catch you. When you do fail, there's grace to love you, totally despite you. This is what D.A. Carson says on this. I really appreciate him for saying it the way he does. He says, We are called to be holy as God is holy. God hates sin. But pursuing holiness without a profound experience of grace in our lives produces hypocrisy and doctrinal cruelty, which is what we see the Pharisees doing in that passage, right? Jesus came into the world to provide that grace through his cross and to establish holiness, righteousness, and justice on the foundation of our experience of his grace. So, and you can underline this in your head, so come to him for grace and set your face to sin no more. Come to him for grace and set your face to sin no more. You see, when I meet with somebody that has a pervasive problem, a sin problem, and it could be anything under the sun, they sit down, they're they're sitting across from me at a restaurant or in my car or at an office or over the phone or whatever, there is a problem. I don't Capital don't, and it's not helpful for you to do this either. Pull out the Bible and show them the 98 times that the Bible says that's wrong. They know it's wrong. It's not that they're ignorant, they know it's wrong. Their heart is convicting them, and they might have already known one or two or three of the passages. I feel like sometimes what we could do is we could just start flipping through the Bible and show them listen, there's 132 places in the Psalms alone that say you're a loser for doing that. And it, like, like we're teaching, like we're going to educate them out of that sin. That's not what's committing the sin. They're not committing it with their brain. They're committing it with their heart. And then the stack on top of it will make them feel guilty for that. I can't believe you commit that sin. Do you know what you're doing to your family? After all, in China, they only have like one page out of the Bible, and they have to rotate it around home church. I mean, what do you think about that? you got the whole Bible in front of you. You, know, you start stacking shame like bricks on top of this copious, and it's true, the Bible does say obey. It says don't misbehave, it says get rid of the sin. But just showing people that, and making them feel guilty and dirty, and just slapping their wrists will provoke no change. It'll just reinforce a new Pharisee. No change. The better way to do it, and what I've had to learn over the years how to do, is just to say, what is your heart really trying to get in that sin? Why are you overworking? What is your heart looking for? Well, Luke, it's looking for security. Okay. So what you really want when you're clocking in 70 hours is just security. Yes, it's security. And then you show them how the gospel provides something that work never could because they're working 70 hours after 70 hours after 70, and they're not feeling any more secure because that's how idols work. But God has given us great security. We need not overwork to get it. That is a better way to grow the only place growth is found is when the heart hungers for something different that's it I mean if I was to apply this real quickly before we're done with this I would apply it to discipleship we're teaching each other we're learning from each other maybe we're discipling people towards the cross but definitely from the cross We're teaching people to look like Jesus. I will say something, (laughs) and I know for a fact, Pharisees are easy to build. They're cheaply manufactured. Pharisees are easy to build. When you handle people's sin, are you going to build a Pharisee, or are you going to build a little Christ in that moment? Because Pharisees are easy. Jesus says so in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. I wonder if we can be guilty of this many times as the church. Or parents. I wonder if we can be guilty of this. It's just simply easier to say, stop it, and you should feel bad for this. Isn't it? What are you doing over there? Hey, stop it. The Bible says not to do that, and you should feel like a total jerk for doing that donkey. Stop doing it. Just stop it. That's easy because we don't want them to be inconvenient to us. They might be making us embarrassed. Whatever the reason, we just want them to stop. It's so easy to do because the upside is is you're going to have people around you that behave or kids that stop screaming and stop paddling. You're going to have behavior around you that looks super clean on the outside because Pharisees look great on the outside. They look great. They're not inconvenient at all. They're gonna toe the line. They're checking things on a clipboard. The downside is is that they will be corrupt inside and they are gonna learn to follow God contractually. They won't know what grace feels like because we're teaching them something other than. We're not teaching them grace. We're not discipling people towards grace. We're showing them law. You have to earn this. People will go forth and they will sin no longer, but it's not because of grace. It's because of a self-serving performance. One of the saddest things for me in my life is the first 10, 12 years of my time in the ministry as a pastor, I'm afraid i built more Pharisees than I did Christians in my discipleship. It's just so easy to do. It's so easy to dangle a carrot in front of people. Don't you want this kind of life? Well, yes, I do. <laughs> I got a long list for you then. This is what you got to do to get that carrot. And, and we're not teaching grace in that moment. I think another point of application might not be how we extend a passage like this to each other, but a passage like this to the lost and broken world. I noticed something very cool in this passage. Jesus muted the harsh and hypocritical judges. They were dropping rocks, and they were shirking away, weren't they? Starting from the oldest. I hope you caught that. It's because they know better. But he did not say that adultery was okay. He was not light on sin. In fact, he took the sin on himself. He did not say that sin was okay. That is not what's happening here. He basically shows the Pharisees that they were handling people from a place of hypocrisy, but he was going to judge from a position of grace. He's not telling you as sinners in the church that you have no right to judge or speak to others or handle others on a sin if you struggle with the same sin. He's not saying that. I think a lot of people pick that up in this passage. He's not even saying it. He's just saying that when we do handle people in their own sin, it's best done from a posture of grace because after all, we received it ourselves. That is what we are supposed to be ministers of to others. Because make no mistake, go to the West Town Mall today or to Market Square, walk up to your average person and say, all right, quickly, without even thinking, I'm going to say a word, you tell me what you think. Ready? Ready? And then we're gonna, yeah, gonna Church, go. <laughs> Try it. Have a video camera before you do, though, okay? I'd love to see it. This is what they'll say. Oh, church, bunch of hypocrites telling us what we need to do. Of course, they're not doing it either. They're just acting all clean. Or something like that, right? It's pretty close. Something like that. I wonder, though, I wonder if we became a church of grace, if it might sound something like, listen, church is full of a bunch of screwed up people, but they know it. (laughs) They know it but they've received this cool thing and they are really changed by it. And whenever they're talking to me, I feel like they want me to see the light that they've seen. I just don't feel like hypocritically judged. I feel like they really love me because that's really the church I think Jesus came to die for. And as we disciple each other, that's the church we grow into. You see, I love my city. I love Knoxville, but it's a dirty city. I love the college campus. It's a dirty college campus. And I think the message I bring, the message we bring, we could have rocks in our hands when we bring it. Here's the gospel. You better get saved or I'm going to start throwing. A message of grace sounds a little bit like you deserve these rocks, but they're not going to get thrown because of Jesus. You can continue living like you are and eventually the rocks will come. But grace says it doesn't have to happen for you. Grace says you can get something that you don't deserve. I think it's a different message. I wonder how many times I have rocks in my hand and how many times I don't when I bring the gospel. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. Neither do I condemn you. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to pray for you guys. Pray for us as a church, really, but neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now go and sin no more. You are free to fail, of course, because grace is there. But you are free to change because the Holy Spirit is there and grace has been administered. Those are both true statements. Many of you in here, you might find yourself less a pharisaical hypocrite in this story, but possibly more the woman who is caught in a sin. Far from God, deserving of the judgment, And what I would say to you is Jesus took a condemnation so you could join a growing cast of family members. Like with this woman, or Zacchaeus, or the paralytic, or the woman by the well, or the tax collectors, the thieves, the liars, the scandals, all the dirty people that Jesus came into contact and won their heart one by one as grace touched them and changed them, right? Because if you're far from Jesus, I know you've been trying to change. You wouldn't be here if there wasn't some piece of you that said, I want to be different, but you've tried everything. You've tried to change your behavior. You've tried to read a Bible that doesn't make any sense to you. You've tried to pray when you feel absolutely nothing. And you wonder, you wonder if you're just not close to Jesus at all, but rather way off in the distance, right? That's the way I felt. I'm just saying to you, Jesus has come with grace. He's come with grace, not law. But he's asking you to lay down your life He's asking you to lay it bare, to drop it. Because in order for there to be no condemnation on you, it must be on Jesus and he must be your king. So I'm going to pray for both of you. Father, we thank you so much for being so good to us. I thank you, Father, for showing me clearly what law is and clearly what grace is, but it's not so clear for me to behave accordingly sometimes. I'm still trying to earn your favor even though you've already given it. I'm still trying to get things from you even though you've already given me all that I need. I'm still trying to avoid a punishment even though you've already emptied out all punishment on Jesus. I still find a raging Pharisee deep inside me. But Lord, just like everyone in this room, we could be sloppy with grace too, picking fights and bars, getting in trouble, being in dark places, because after all, I've got a bar tab that will never end. Father, show us today how we misappropriate grace. We want to be an obedient church. I know I speak for everyone in here. We want to obey. But Lord, I know clearly from your scripture it's important how we do this, not just that we do this. You are so good to us. I think of you talking to this woman saying, Neither do I condemn you. And you knew it, God. You knew in that moment that you were going to take the condemnation. You knew that. You didn't say it to her at that time. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Father, I love you, and I know this church loves you. We want to be better disciples, building not Pharisees, but those who love and are fascinated by grace. We want to be a picture to this city, not of hypocrites that pretend they're not dirty, but, but a church that knows we're fractured and failed. But grace is changing us from the inside out, and we have a beautiful message. Help us be both these kinds of churches. And Father, for those who are in here that find themselves very far off in the distance, maybe they don't feel like others are judging them, but they they wonder if they're going to get caught. They wonder if they would ever be accepted if people knew what they were involved with. They wonder, Father, what, what would happen. They can almost put themselves in this story, being in front of everybody as people have rocks judging, ready to throw. Lord, that you would create a picture in their heart of you with your arms open, without rocks, but with nails. As you flowed blood for us, not to give us an unending bar tab, but to change us from the inside out. You are so beautiful, Your grace is so big. I still don't have my arms all around it. Your grace is so fascinating. Your gift is so generous. And you are so kind. You are worthy to be our hero. You are so good. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.